Welcome to Hearth and Soul. I'm your host, Angela Torres Kakyun. I'm a foodie, food nerd, opera singer, and the food manager and preservation queen at Spoken, a cafe in the Ravenswood neighborhood of Chicago. I have extensive experience in food service, and I think I have this sort of passion that sits within me, and the more I learn, the more I want to share. And people started asking me questions, and the more questions I answered, the more I realized that maybe I should put it down for others that don't know me and can't ask me in person. You're listening to episode four. Today, I am interviewing William Goodwin and Sidonie Godet, the owners and operators of Spoken, a cafe on Montrose, which if you listen to my intro at all, you'll know that that is where I work. So yes, I took the easy route. I'm interviewing my bosses. I'm not sorry about it. And I hope you're not either. Um, But first, a little bit of some updates. Um, So this episode is being recorded in August and won't air until October. But I did want to let you guys know that shortly after we recorded last week, the last episode with uh, Amanda Neal, um, she got a chance to perform at Cultura, which is a Filipino-American food and arts festival, um, with a really awesome uh, Filipino improv group called Spitfire. And I think she did mention it in our last episode, but I wanted to highlight what an awesome way it is that it way is to create a space where multicultural people can feel like they're welcomed and like they belong and they have a place to celebrate who they are, which was all about all what our last episode was about. So if you didn't catch that, go back to episode three and check that out with Amanda. Next up is our wine report. So today from my naked wine stash, I have something from the Columbia Valley in Washington. It's a Columbia Valley Merlot called, I'm gonna say it probably wrong, but it looks like Michaud, if you pronounce it the French way. Yeah. Um, We've all tasted it, and I like it. What do you guys think about it? I do like it. It's a little little sweeter, or rather, a little less dry than a lot of Merlots that I've had. Yeah, right? It doesn't give you that weird, like, carpet feeling on your tongue. Yeah. Which I prefer to not have in a wine, if I can avoid it. Some people really like that. I am not one of those people. Um, Merlot's not usually my first choice, but I grabbed it because it had the um, twist open thing. Because, in case you guys have noticed, the sound is a little bit different. Um, We are actually recording on site today here at Spoken. Because it's just, it's sometimes it's nice to get out of studio and out of regular habits and, you know, be in a different place, in a different space. And it's a lot easier for Will and Cito to just record in their own shop. Um, and then I didn't have to leave work. I just stayed here, which was awesome, too. Um, so, but I brought this wine because it had the twist top, so it'd be easier to open and I wouldn't have to hunt for a wine opener. Um, Maureen tasted it as well. She's a... Uh, producer with Scoppy Mag, and she said it was jammy, and I would agree with that. That's a good description. It's a really good description. Jammy. It's like one of those, um, one of the tart, more tart jams that I make, like... Blackberry. Like the blackberry or the gooseberry, even. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, so I'm a fan. This is now... We're two for two with the Naked Wines. Um... Both red wines, which I normally, I'm normally into white, but these have both been really nice. And again, just like the one last, in last episode, this one's really, I feel like it's really easy to drink. Like it's not, I don't know. It seems like a pretty simple table wine. Yeah. If that makes sense. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yes, Got anything absolutely. else to say about the wine? 
No? It's lovely. No, it's lovely. Like it. it tastes yeah. good. You're drinking it. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so let's get to it, shall we? Um, so this this is kind of a broad question, but basically just for our listeners to, to know who you... I know all about you, obviously, but um, our listeners don't really know who you are. So tell us your story, as in where did you come from? What brought you to Chicago and led you to owning a cafe? Man, that's a lot to cover. It's a lot. Can I take the be, first part? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Will and I, we come from uh, a very small uh, southern Louisiana town called New Iberia. We grew up about a mile apart. However, it took him moving all the way to Chicago for us to actually meet. <laughs> um, but, you know... Long story short, we both ended up here. He had been working here uh, when it was in its first, uh, you know, uh, installment as Beans and Bagels. And you would know more about this part, though. Yeah, I was working for <laughs> I was working for Potbellies for several years during like their initial growth, and um, then found myself with entirely entirely too many duplicate bosses. Um, and um, all the fun sort of sucked out of it. So I left and took some time off and then applied for a job at my local little punk rock cafe. <laughs> um, and um, they laughed at me um, that I wanted to work here at all, um, <laughs> but decided to hire me anyway. Um, and uh, I started working here in 2002. Yeah. Wow, okay. That was the spring of 2002. Um, and um, that was fun, and that was fine, um, but it was certainly not paying the bills, so I just sort of stumbled backwards into numerous side gigs, one of which was like making menu boards for the restaurant. So mm -hmm. I made menu boards for this restaurant. Um, or rather redid all the menu boards for this cafe and then a local coffee roaster, uh, Metropolis Coffee, that was just getting off the ground, saw our menu boards and we were like one of their very first clients so they asked me if I could make them some menu boards and then I made menu boards for them and then Let Us Entertain You found menu boards at Metropolis and they asked me to start making menu boards for them so that took off for a few years and oh yeah, because they were kind of a—they're kind of a big thing. They have a lot, a lot of restaurants. Lot of restaurants yeah, all over huge. Chicago, right? And, well, all over the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and then I like nursed that side job for a while um, to kind of float um, working at a cafe at a time when it was certainly not feasible to be an only job. Um, <laughs> And then started building custom bicycles as well. I built a bicycle for myself. Mm -hmm. Somebody liked it, saw it, asked me if I could build them a bike, and then that turned into sort of a bottomless pit of opportunity. So I built bikes for years and years and years, um, still while working at the cafe and saving money um, for what I didn't really know um, other than just saving money until the owner's wife got a job offer in a different different state and they moved away and they became quite serious about selling the two um, shops. We had this location of Beans and Bagels and mm -hmm. a secondary location in um, a, a close neighborhood um, and uh, 
I bought this particular location and one of the managers from the other location bought that one. Um, and right. now here I am, owner of <laughs> um, um, a great little cafe in the neighborhood. It is a great little cafe. I mean, that's why I'm here. Um, so let's talk like big picture stuff. Um, you have managed to create a sustainable business model that serves the community, it serves your employees, it serves the planet. There's a lot of people out there that don't think that that's possible. Like I, I've seen a lot, having come from a business in Michigan that that started off as a small independent business as well, you know, a lot of people tell them, well, how you can't possibly be doing this. You're, you can't possibly be making any money. You're paying your employees too much. You're, how can you offer all these benefits? How can you do this? Um, but they turned it into a business model that works. And you sort of did that without, they've created a business of helping other people create a business model. You did that without their help, which I find kind of funny that I ended up at a place that has a similar business model without the two different businesses communicating, which is um, maybe that says something about me. I don't know. Um, but for a small business, a lot of people think that it's impossible for a small business owner to be able to pay more than a minimum wage, let alone a living wage, or that establishing an environmentally and socially responsible business is too expensive. So if you guys could and like I said this is big picture so what are your thoughts on that like was it always your goal to have this kind of business model or did it just sort of happen in bits and pieces well I, I had worked here um, for for quite some time and was very comfortable coming from um, a very strict budget and mm -hmm. I still had that mindset when I took over the shop um, and very soon realized, um, since the person that owned it before me did not keep very good books, nor did they show me the books when I bought the <laughs> shop, so I bought it like completely blind other than Ooh. just like working here every day and seeing a line all the way out the door. So like I knew like something was going right. Mm -hmm. So if we like priced everything correctly, and we did everything correctly. We had the one thing that is key, customers. Right. You, we had that already. And after a few short months of owning the shop, I realized, you know, that the shop was doing fine. Mm -hmm. And, like, the shop was doing financially very well. And it, we had the wiggle room, plenty of wiggle room, to begin making improvements and those improvements were done in tandem with the manager um, before I took over this uh, this place with the manager from the other location of Beans and Bagels when it was Beans and Bagels right. in um, eschewing certain products and um, getting like kicking high fructose corn syrup out of the shop was like our first goal. Right, so I remember we, that. we just like ditched every single thing in the beverage cooler because it was all like Nantucket nectars and Snapple and Coca-Cola and mm -hmm. Dr. Pepper and all these like different, you know, major brands, all of which had, you know, something um, terrible hiding somewhere in the long ingredients list. Right. So um, knowing that, you know, we had the financial freedom to, to do these things once he and I both had examined um, 
uh, the, the shop's finances a little bit, little bit more closely, we realized we had the space to serve a much better product. And mm-hmm. we had the customers who already trusted us to come along with us and continue to trust us as we began making changes. Um, and that is not an easy thing to do. Right. Um, um, Change is hard for people, especially when you're messing with their breakfast. Oh, always. Yeah. You know, and, like mean, suddenly you change their breakfast menu and, and, and bad, bad things happen. It is people, totally which ritualistic. Is why we've, at no point in all of this did we make any sort of like dramatic um, change. It was all of these baby steps that mm-hmm. people were okay with, and I could be patient enough to like wait on, you know, like I right. knew that the goal further down the road with, you know, homemade absolutely everything mm-hmm. was was gonna work, but I couldn't just flip a light switch and make that happen, so it had to be these gradual changes, like just something like as simple as like let's get rid of all the beverages and start over again mm-hmm. and you know, have lots of like small brand local beverages all of which have just like natural sugar in them um, or, you know, very, very low sugars. And then we discovered that there was high fructose corn syrup in a whole bunch of our condiments and right. our pickled products for whatever reason had high fructose corn syrup in there because people put it in everything to sweeten anything for any reason. So mm-hmm. we stopped buying any sort of homemade condiments or any sort of condiments, you know, mayos, mustards, ketchup, barbecue sauce, anything that we used and started making all of our own and then like to accomplish some of the hurdles in making some of those condiments required us to pickle some veggies Mm -hmm. to make some of these condiments so we started pickling all of our own veggies um and that sort of drove the the seasonal element of what the shop offered um as far as you know um focusing on seasonal foods during the summer months and focusing on preserved foods during the winter months. Right. So um, it was all of these baby steps led us to this place where we could serve better food and by you know by proxy also bring our customers along with us and generate you know uh, generate more revenue, which allowed us you know like after a year or two of ownership. And examining the finances, we realized, like, there was no reason for people to, you know, for almost every staff member to have a second job when we could just pay them. Mm-hmm. And that, combined with their tips, was a very comfortable wage for, you know, working in a cafe, which is a fairly um, easy job, you know, uh, physically taxing. Unless um, you're me. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> physically taxing but it's certainly not a job you're going to wake up and it's not a job you're going to wake up and like bemoan having to go to no you know. right uh it, it's it, it's an easy job it's a fun place to to go and that's like something that i'd always wanted to uh to, to have i had to have you know at one point three jobs mm-hmm. just to be able to afford working here and everyone that I knew that worked here had to have multiple jobs just to be able right. to afford to work at a 
fairly like relaxing job. Right. Um, well, but not only that, but like being able to have you know your one thing that kind of pays the bills, and then the you know rest of your time you can do stuff that you're passionate about that you know that mm-hmm. gives you dignity that that makes you like yes excited about it. Right. Right. But also too like having the kind of team that we have here as well, it really you know like we make sure nobody is like left in the lurches. If things get right. crazy, we're always going to swoop in and help each other out mm-hmm. because if one of us is struggling, that means that they need a hand. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Well, and I don't think right now, I don't think we have anybody that needs a second job. I mean, I have, I have a church job, but that's like extra. That's, it's like bonus that's your happy money. Place. Uh, right. That's like the, my singing game. I mean, in but, most cases, in most cases, the second job that people have, this is filling the gaps on that job because mm-hmm. their first job that they had is the thing that they're passionate about, but it just doesn't just doesn't pay the bills. Make enough money, you know. Right. Like in, in the you know the world of the arts, for whatever reason, be it photography or videography mm-hmm. or theater work or singing, you can spend a long, 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 long time working and making you know, little to nearly no money Yep. before if you're lucky, you get your dream gig and then you can live off of just your photography or just your video work or Mm -hmm. just your singing or just your acting, which is, you know, a pipe dream for most people. It is. It's rare. It's rare. Yeah. Most of us have to have what we call day jobs and uh, not everybody gets to do a day job that they actually like, which is... I think that's what makes this this place different. You know, we have people like to be here. Yeah, for the and most you know, part. I mean, you know, you're you know. contributing to you know you're contributing contributing to a, a community of customers. You know that 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 all get to know each other through this little community hub of lunch and breakfast and right. and and ritual. You know, and coming here all the time. You know, for people who are at work, a lot of times lunches. You know, like the same place they have a go-to place Mm -hmm. it's close by and you know they feel good about spending their money there and breakfast is just ritual like whatever ritual it is wherever you end up getting breakfast for so many people like breakfast is before they can even think clearly so wherever they go that's where they go that's where they go Um, and it's the same thing every day yeah Yeah. and it's the same thing every day (laughs) so we've kind of already touched on this a little bit but let's let's talk about let's talk about food the good stuff this is mm. somewhat of a food podcast um so when i first started here it was before you bought the shop and we were still beans and bagels and like you said everything was um it was not made in house uh and then when when you guys started getting rid of corn syrup products we still didn't make anything in this shop. Every stuff was made at the other shop because they had a big kitchen. Right. And then it was bicycled over here once a week, twice a week, whatever we needed. Um, so now, <laughs> how many, wait, you, you purchased the shop 2013, 2012, mm-hmm. 2013, Yesterday right? Yesterday was our anniversary. That's right. Yes. Um, Yesterday's our five year anniversary. Of yes. Planet. August 12th, fifth yep. anniversary. Wow. Mm-hmm. Time flies. Um, so now we make everything, everything here, everything from scratch. Um, so talk a little bit about, a little bit more about that evolution. Um, I know that it started with the corn syrup, you know, trying to get rid of all of that stuff and then it snowballed. So 
how did that happen? And was that, was it always your desire to have a place where you could make everything from scratch? You know, having worked in a lot of different restaurants, that was, it's really hard to change habits. And as you get get older, it's even harder and harder to change or create entirely uh, new habits. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, we slowly but surely realized as we were making these things and making our own condiments, you know, the, the condiments was like an easy start, but there were, you know, like we couldn't make Thousand Island dressing because, uh, or, or properly at least, because we didn't have pickles. We would have to buy store-bought pickles and um, a lot of times sweet store-bought pickles uh-huh. have high fructose corn, corn syrup, syrup in yep. them. So we had to, you know, like make our own pickles so we could make our own Thousand Island dressing mm-hmm. so we could serve turkey Rubens. Right. Um, and uh, eventually it became, you know, uh, these, like, o- almost like a challenge. Like, you know, we buy sauerkraut, and the sauerkraut that we buy is, you know, uh, it doesn't have, like, a, I mean, sauerkraut is simple. It doesn't have a super long ingredients list. It's water, cabbage, and salt. Right. And I think the sauerkraut we were buying was, like, water, cabbage, salt, and possibly citric acid just as, to, as an extra preservation. Yeah, yeah, as an extra preservation and most likely to ensure, like, uniform color every single time right. that it's produced. And we realized, like, sauerkraut is just time yeah. and, you know, a lot of cabbage. It's not, <laughs> it's not a lot of effort really so at much all. Cabbage. Um, but, you know, a lot of these things became challenges, like, can we make that ourselves? You know, like, as mm-hmm. we approach... Um, another step in, in 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 the evolution of the shop and installing a full kitchen because we still accomplish as much as we accomplish in um, a shoe closet of a space. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to have to say it, but it's true. It is a it's shoe true. closet of a space where it's, two people it's work. Tiny. Uh, where two people work, quote unquote, butt to butt. All day long. Yep, that's um, truth. That is truth. While other people try and squeeze back and forth between them every um, six to um, eight minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in this tiny space and in improving this tiny space, we are wanting to um, expand that and separate away some of the prep work and install gas burners and install ovens and mm-hmm. you know the next thing on my list um is like contemplating like can we bake our own turkey breast do mm-hmm. we need to continue buying and the turkey breast that we buy is good turkey breast there's no fillers or anything like right. that but um we use a lot of it and can we make it Better. financially um feasible to make our own mm-hmm. um which and, and that is a lot of the challenges in a lot of these cases is like, how can we make this financially feasible? Um, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right, You know, right. so there are some things, you know, um, that you shouldn't be attempting to make on your own mm-hmm. unless you can also sell it to other people or something. Because otherwise right. it would just be entirely too expensive. Um, and I think we've actually um, just sort of absorbed some of the making on our own costs um we know like it could be cheaper if we could just make a whole lot more yeah and then sell it wholesale or whatever yeah um but that's just not where we're at right now and 
maybe we will or won't go there. But a lot of these things just sort of like show, uh, appear as challenges um, because we know it'll be much better and we like, you know, we try an experiment and that experiment is delicious. And we're like, shit, we should make this. <laughs> we should do this. We should do this, you know? And then it's just, you know, like putting it all through as a restaurant owner, like you can't just like make things and then throw it on the menu. Like you need to like figure out how much did that just cost you mm-hmm. and what is the overhead on that? And like you really need to figure out the honest cost of that. And sometimes we figure out the honest cost of things and we can't make that. It's it's just it's it, too much. It's yeah, yeah, way, yeah. way too expensive. Or right. like, yes, we can make this as a special one day and um, people will just have to deal with um, how much we're going to have to charge them. For um, that one day. For that one day, because it's a cafe, Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's no table service or anything like that. The sun is still out. There's, like, a price cap, uh, like, an imaginary price cap on what people will spend on food while the sun is still up. Right. You know? It's true. Uh, It's true. You're not going to get someone to shell out a few hundred dollars for a meal while the sun is still up. No, no. And especially if you're not like in some swanky yes, downtown table location. service or anything yeah, like that. You can all tell them that. all day long like where the food came from and how good the food is yeah. and how responsible it is. But in the end, like there is like a cap on what we can make and what we can serve here because we just serve breakfast and lunch, mm-hmm. you know? Right, um, right. And most of these people are working people. Folks aren't, you know, coming here in suits and ties and bourbon mm-hmm. and cigars at lunchtime, <laughs> um, you know, to, to, to have a meal. So a lot of this has to be very careful planning to, 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 to make sure that we can do these things. But in, in most cases, we figure out a way to, to make these things work so we can serve people better food because in a whole lot of cases, the, the healthiest, most responsible meals that a lot of these people are eating are the ones that they eat here. Yeah. Like for the whole day. And then, you know, um, in a lot of cases it's just because it's, they don't know how to do the things that we're doing here. And that's why they're willing to like make us a part of their budget, which in a lot of cases that is definitely what we are. We are a part of their budget. Yeah. And I, a daily, twice a day cafe habit it adds up it adds up it adds up a lot a lot they know that they're getting something really good that they can't produce on their own right and i i hadn't really thought about the idea that like there's only so much somebody's willing to spend on lunch but at the same time if that lunch is something that is completely homemade well too like when you when it comes to when it comes to like you know the kind of clientele and knowing you know knowing your clientele mm-hmm. um, I mean bef- prior to you know uh, my husband approaching me and saying hey do you want to do this coffee shop thing together <laughs> um, oh and while you're at it do you want to get married <laughs> um, we're just like yeah I'm surprised let's go you were like you crazy <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's not hard when you love what you do. Yeah. And, you know, being where we grew up in Louisiana, you naturally have this hospitality, this kindness that you just approach the entire world with. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, you know, having that be the first, 
the first interaction that people have when they've rolled out of bed and gotten dressed and they just need coffee to make make their mind work right, right. so that they can do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to like knowing your clientele and like, okay, you know, like we have people that are, we're literally located right underneath train stop, yep. the L. And so you have people that are like, I need a coffee, I need a bagel, and then I got to go. I got to go, yep. But then you also have your neighborhood folk who are like, okay, this is my moment of zen. This mm-hmm. is the time before I have to talk to people and answer some emails and like figure out what I'm going to do on this conference call that I have to do. Um, and it's really nice to kind of give people not just this wholesome food aspect, but mm-hmm. also this wspace where they can come in and they can... <sighs> just let it <laughs> Take go. Take a moment. Yeah. You know, you know, like you have the moms that live around the corner that are getting ready to drop everybody off at school mm-hmm. and you have you have Donut Friday where we'll have a gaggle of moms that bring the kids in as a treat. Like, hey, you got out of the house on time. Let's go get a donut. <laughs> Yay! Um and it's really it's it's really fulfilling at the end of the day, you know, as much as we've been on our feet, as much, you know, like problem solving that we've done to have that space just both for your stomach mm-hmm. and for your soul where you can come in and just it's going to be okay. Right. And <laughs> I think interestingly enough that's sort of the whole purpose of this podcast is to talk about those things that do that for your stomach but also for your soul. Like it's that's why I'm calling it hearth and soul. We're not just it's not just a food podcast. It's about well, we those this, yeah. those things that that make you feel whole, that make you feel like a person like yeah. you know what I mean like those Absolutely. those are important moments that I think that a lot of times in life in the society in this day and age we've just sort of rushed we rush past everything and nobody takes time for themselves anymore and I think being in a place where people can come and get their cappuccino in the morning and just sit for like five minutes and decompress before they have to face that world I think that's really important and I feel like this is the kind of place that fosters that a lot. You know, it's not, it's not <clears throat> Starbucks. So well, it's, it's not, not rushed. It's, it's not fast. It's not fast food. You know, like we will go as fast as is reasonable, but at right. the same time, like food takes time. And this, that, that is the point of what we do and mm-hmm. the, the risks that we take in serving what we serve. Cause some of the things we serve take longer. Yes. But, this is, you know, a lot of times this is a, a bell ringer, if you will, to like eliminate people's Pavlovian response to like, you know, like food. Go. Gimme. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and having taken advantage of a food system for as long as we have here in the United States, we've created an utterly broken food system where, and, and mentality mm-hmm. where people are just disconnected from their food for several meals if not all of their meals every day they have no clue where it came from or how it got made or anything and that's Mm -hmm. that's that's a problem it's a big problem it's a it's a really big problem when people think that a burger shouldn't be more than three dollars right you know there's condiments on there someone had to bake the bread someone had to grow a cow yep <laughs> someone had to someone had to process that cow like there's all these parts involved and 
we've created a fast food system that removes everyone from like those ugly details mm -hmm. and we've created these like little like units and people think that unit of you know food should cost this much and they're blind to all of the moving parts of that right and it's been great to have this restaurant have this space that is also wide open mm -hmm. with how much we share with the customers and how we make things and how much the customers can see of what we do right you know right. so it's so it's apparent like you can be upset but you can also watch how fast we're moving and how much we have to do to create your food so right, you right. understand like and this is why it took that long right. one because of all the work I have to do to make your food and two because there were 15 people in front of you. Exactly. And I made food for all of them. Before I made food for you. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, 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 I like having what we do out in the open and exposed um, in, in our place. So it, for, for those who've not been here, this cafe is 853 square feet. And there is one tiny divider wall that um, hides our lovely chef Angela, um, and then <laughs> <That's me. laughs> um, everything else is in the open. You can see absolutely everything that happens, yeah. and um, I think that's a very important part of what we do, so folks can understand how food is made. Mm -hmm. You know, when you tell people that you make your own mayo, and they are amazed. Or they think that there's dairy in mayo and they have no right. idea that mayo is just oil and eggs and acid <sighs> right. and seasoning, you know. Or they, you know, everyone thinks that mayo will get you sick if it sits out, even though it's incredibly high in acid and is an incredibly stable product. It's sort of a testament to how disconnected we've become from really, really simple products. Oh, yeah. And we've allowed... You know, we, we've we've allowed ourselves to be lulled into like all of these packaged foods and with a false you know, food sense of that security comes in a bags them. or food that comes in a bag or a box. Mm -hmm. You know, when I go to the grocery store, it makes me sad when I see a grocery cart filled with bags and boxes. Me too. Instead yeah. of produce and you know, like vegetables and meats and cheeses. Yeah. Like you can tell when you're at a grocery store who's cooking and who's warming. Who's microwaving, yeah, essentially. You know, and, I mean, and it's sad, and it's not really... It, it's more of a, 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 a testament to either their... You know, to people's unwillingness to learn or what time they've budgeted away mm -hmm. from making their food rather than into making their food. Right, you right. Know? So all of this is key in creating better food for people so and, and educating them so they will like come along with us right right for this adventure you know and like seeing customers experiment or try and make things that they eat every day at your shop on their own mm -hmm. like i'm not mad i want them to learn and to know and to make more on their own right well and i love it when we when we tell customers where certain things come from and they you get that moment of surprise, you know, like, oh yeah, this tomato jam on the shelf, you know, we, we grew the tomatoes down the street. Cito, Cito grew them and picked them and I made them into jam. And people are like, confidence. Oh God, wait, I love that. what? You I love grew, that face. You grew it and you 
<laughs> what? Like that? Like they don't even know that that's a thing that you can do. Yeah. Like where does jam come from? Well, it comes from the grocery store. Well, no, actually, oh. it comes from a fruit that someone has to grow and then turn into that product. Like for one, like one instance of this is like, for instance, these beautiful, beautiful Michigan strawberries that we have gotten the past few years. Oh my gosh! Past few years. Yes. And I can actually tell people. I mean, you, yeah, it says strawberry jam. This is a straight up strawberry preserve. Like mm-hmm. your your traditional recipe comprises of one part fruit, one part sugar. Right. It's a lot of sugar. It's a lot of sugar. But when you have a beautiful product, something that you know, you know the farmer, mm-hmm. you know it goes directly when you pay them for this fruit. It's going to them. It's right. not going to a distributor. It's not going to some crazy plant. Right. You know, that or a packager or a middleman of any kind. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get to do six parts fruit and one part sugar. Mm-hmm. And you can actually like taste what that is at the height of its beautiful, beautiful, right. you know, just perfection. Right, right. And, you know, and people really like, once we were able to, you know, launch our retail jams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, no, they're going to be always small batches. We oh. will not sell online. We will not do any of that stuff because we put so much, so much. love and so much attention into it. And I only have two hands. Let's yes. just be honest. <laughs> yes. We'll get you some more. They give me some more hands? That would be awesome. That would be fantastic. Do you know how much more jam I could make? Um, <laughs> so this was not on my previous like little outline that I gave you guys, but I want to talk a little bit about the sort of Southern hospitality aspect. So I, I disclaimer, I am not Southern in any way, shape or form. I'm a true Midwest girl to my core raised in Iowa and Michigan, but somehow have found myself immersed in this like Southern shop. You might not be Southern, but you do play a Southern lady on stage. It's true. I do play a Southern lady on stage. <laughs> pretty convincingly, I might say. I had I had some little old ladies pretty convinced that I was from Georgia. So uh, I'll, I'll take that. That's fine. Um, but I was not raised in that culture. I, I mean, I was raised in at Venezuelan, which is a completely different kind of hospitality, I think. But... It, just, they have their crossovers, right? Right. But let's just talk a little bit about that because I think that in in the United States there is a distinct lack of, and and I don't mean to offend anybody listening who is not from the South. There is a lack of warmth, and there is a very genuine disconnect, not just from our food, but from other people in in this time period that we're living in. We are all doing our own thing and noses in the phones and it's really hard to like connect with people but I feel like here somehow we've managed to get at least a little bit away from that so talk a little bit about just that idea of like the southern hospitality how that has come into play so yeah well so for (laughs) us I mean for us it's like um so being where we grew up in uh, there's a small little triangle of southern Louisiana that's the uh, you know Acadiana, mm-hmm. and that's where a majority of uh, these descendants of people who were essentially evacuated and deported from their homeland in Nova Scotia. Okay, um, and they called it the Le Grand Derangement, um, the Great Derangement. Oh. Um, and this happened 250-something years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, you had a huge you know, group of people who had to 
readjust to a whole new way of life. Right. And, you know, and they got along with Indians and they got along with different cultures. There's a huge melting pot that happens. There's, there's German, there's Islanos mm -hmm. from the Canary Islands, there's Spanish, there's French, there's Creole. There's a whole bunch of different parts. And you kind of, as a Cajun, you learn to, you know, figure out your differences, mm -hmm. your strengths. And you work together because, in all honesty, it's hot in Louisiana. <laughs> it's the, I mean, if you think about the climate that it is, it's oppressive. <laughs> you know, and it was centuries before they had air conditioning oh, yeah. and all these modern conveniences. And, you know, you have hurricanes and you mm -hmm. have natural disasters. So you really learn how to, you know, help your neighbor mm -hmm. and... Be warm because honestly, who's got time for that? Right. To be to be rude and to be uh, you know upset about it. And so, like you know, I mean, just kind of how we both grew up. You know, our families always cooked. Mm -hmm. You always cook way too much, and you invite everybody around you to come and help you with your food. I don't you don't want to eat that by yourself. I don't know you anything about all, that. You, you want to share you, it. You, you, you put all that work into it and. You know, in the end, eventually, it gets to this place where you want it to be something more. So, you invite more people over, and then everyone participates. And some mm -hmm. people might think of it as a, as a potluck, but everything is central. Food is the central thing in Southern Louisiana. That is like that is what brings everyone together. Mm -hmm. It is. Like either, either there is the, the either there is the food, and everyone comes together because of the food, or everyone comes together to make more food, <laughs> and then while they're eating that food, they talk about the next food that they're gonna eat later today. Mm -hmm. Talk about um, what your grandma used to make, or oh, that's not how my mama made it. You know, like oh, that's not how Papa made it. You know, like there's there's it's. I mean, but it's but it's actually it's really nice because we've been given you know kind of backwards, you know, and haphazardly, this really great opportunity to give all the things we love about making food and about making it with love and about accepting people and about giving people that, that space where they're just like, I'm home, you know? Yeah. And it, it really, it always makes my day when people walk in the door and they're like, this place is so comfortable. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we've had it compared to like somebody's living room, just way better coffee. <laughs> and I'm totally cool with that. Right. That's, right. I'm like, all right, mission accomplished. Right. So for folks listening, Cito actually, um, for the most part is in our front of house. She works on the register and deals with all of our retail stuff. So she organizes the, the jams that I, so I don't have to do that and um, all of the other retail things. And she's decorated with all these beautiful photographs um, of flowers and history and, and photos of Louisiana and just all kinds of amazing things. And she grows our garden and flowers and she makes this place, I feel like she makes this place a home away from home. I'm humbled. Um, <laughs> Because really, the the style when you walk in here is that's you, that's Cito, and I mean I know that because I know you. But so when people walk in and they say that, they're they're really saying that about you because this is you've put your heart into all of this, well, which I think it's is the house where my cats don't live, right? <laughs> <laughs> where you spend the other half of your time. It's true. Um, and then Will as does a lot of the um, paperwork, emailing, cooking. 
running of things, fixing of things. He's the mastermind. Angela makes all the ingredients, and I put the ingredients together and give them to people. Uh, Yeah. So you will, when you come into the shop, you will likely see one of them. You probably won't see me, but you will see (laughs) either one or both of them, which is kind of cool as well. Because I think a lot of people expect when you walk into a a shop like this or a restaurant that you're not going to see the owners. The owners are in an office somewhere making money. But... That's not how it works here. Everybody, oh, no, we're family. Everybody puts in the work. Yeah, equally no, I, as hard, which I think is it makes us different. It makes yeah. the shop a different. Well, sort and of also, experience. you know, there's a, there's a difference. You know, for Will and I, there's a difference between being being an owner who's like you know a satellite, mm-hmm. you know, around doing the the things behind the scenes, mm-hmm. which we do. Yes, of. yes, yes, um, they do. But there's also <laughs> the owner that's very hands-on. Like, I know the names of everybody that comes through the door. Mm-hmm. You know, if you come through the door more than two or three times, I really make an important, like, a really, really big job to try and remember your name. What yeah. do you do? Like, are you having a good day? I notice that you, you seem kind of, you know, off. Right. Oh, it's your birthday? You know what? Let me to give you a coffee because mm-hmm. you know what you deserve it you made it through the last year right <laughs> <laughs> um and but it's also it, it, it kind of like it it sparks something in people where they're just like oh you remembered my name yeah well, what's your name and I'm like well I'm one of the owners you know right right that's my husband right over there making your bagel right and it's really it's this refreshing thing that you know in my mind shouldn't be refreshing it should be just one of those things that everybody Standard. should have mm-hmm. but it just makes it all that more special when you know you see that light bulb go off right and they're like oh, they well, found their place I had we had a customer in earlier today who um, has a an aversion to well alert allergy maybe to canola oil um and so was asking our our register person at the time about what dressings he could get on a salad and i just happened to be there i'm not usually out front for those of you listening who want to come visit me i'm usually in the back hiding um making jam but um or something else uh but i happened to be out front getting myself a cup of coffee and i was able to turn around and say to the gentleman oh well if you can't have canola oil this this is what you can have are you sure? Yes, I'm absolutely positive. You know why? Because I made it. Because I made everything, all of these dressings. I know exactly what's in every single one of them. So next time you come in and you got you have questions about any of these ingredients, just, just ask for me. And I can tell you what's in everything on the menu. And if I can't, then Will can or Cito can if one of them are here. Like, we know. We got you. And he said to me, wow, that's really refreshing. Because I'm really picky about what I can eat. And I can't often go out to eat. And for something as small of a detail as that, like, if you don't care as a restaurant, then there's canola oil in everything. Everything. Yeah. Canola oil is is canola oil is only in the the things that we put it in as a matter of function. Yeah. Like, yeah. It has to be in there. Any other oil won't. Won't work. work. Right. You know, um, canola oil won't set when you refrigerate it. Right, exactly. Olive oil will. Will, which is what we I told this guy. We can make our mayo yeah. with olive oil, but it would be almost unusable. And it would also be a different flavor. And it would be right. a very, very different flavor. Which is what I told this, this customer, and I said, you know, we try to not use canola oil when we don't have to. But sometimes you have to, and it's because of those those very reasons. So, but just ask. We got you. You know, we can tell you what's in everything. 
Right. Half the stuff might have canola oil, but the other half doesn't. And he said, well, because most places, everything is canola. And I said, well, but we're not most places. So. No. no. Most places don't take that time to kind of like, you know what, if we do it ourselves, we know exactly what's in it. You're not exactly. getting any right. preservatives. You're not getting any stuff that really, honestly, if you're making a good product, doesn't have to doesn't be have there. To be there. And, and as extensive as our menu is, we could have a laundry list of things that are pre-made from the grocery store. Oh, yeah. Because the menu is is broad and expansive, and there are a lot of things that we serve that most places would never, ever try and make on their own. Right. They would just buy it. Right. Like, why would you... Why would you make mustard? Why would you bother making green pesto when they just sell it in a bucket? Why would you bother making roasted red pepper pesto when they just sell it in a bucket? Right. You know, and, and for whatever reason, if you read the ingredients list on any of those things that you buy that way, there's 30 things in there when there should be like seven things exactly, in there. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why we make it and yeah, we don't buy it. It's just easier to answer those questions. I was somewhere last night and this lady was trying to order a chicken sandwich and she was wondering if there's dairy in it. And I looked at the menu and I wanted to tell her there's no dairy in there. But... I know about food, and some people don't. Right, She's right. asking the staff, and the staff are all looking at each other for this chicken sandwich on a bun with coleslaw and pickles. There's no dairy in there. There's not going to be dairy in that, yeah. And they're all looking at each other, and it took like seven people to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And it was just really, really sad. I'm like... I, I can't believe it took that kind of effort and nearly 10 or 15 minutes to figure out if there was dairy in... In a chicken sandwich. This chicken sandwich, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's beneficial to it, to us, at least, to be able to, like, answer those questions, like, with confidence and, mm-hmm. and give people that confidence, which, you know, of course, drives a lot of people who are very concerned about their food and what they eat to us because they know that they can trust us. Right, right. And I think that there's something to be said about people gaining more knowledge about local foodways and how they can support local food instead of, you know, Driscoll's from... I don't know if I sh- I'm allowed to say that, actually. I hope I don't get sued. I've already but, said um, Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper, so come at me, so bro. So, there we go. Um, <laughs> what you want? If we get that big that, that we're being sued by Driscoll's, then... Uh, Honestly, getting sued by Driscoll's would be good publicity. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So, but, like, you know, Driscoll's had that whole thing about the, how they were treating their... their um, migrant farm workers, the people mm-hmm. that were, are picking the berries. The people that are literally picking the food that you put in your face yes. were not being treated humanely. Which to me is just—that's as awful as like adding. And y'all don't want to know, product. by the way, how much strawberries cost from California, picked by American citizens making a minimum of whatever the whatever minimum, minimum wage, wage is. Because yeah. trust me, those people are paid way below the minimum wage. Oh, absolutely. You don't want to know what strawberries cost, picked by people who make eight dollars an hour. Right. You're not getting strawberries from the other side of the country for. Five dollars a pound, less or less, right? Right. So I do know that there, you know, some people try to be more aware, at least. And maybe it could be that we are in a an area, being in Chicago, in a city where people you get you have more people, right? So you have more people trying to think about these things, or it seems like it. 
So, you know, people, oh, well, I read this thing about Driscoll, so I don't want to eat Driscoll's berries. I want to spend my dollars somewhere else. So knowing that they can come here and most of what's on the menu is going to be as local as we can possibly get it. You know, like Midwest, whenever possible. Down the street, whenever possible. Yes. Which, you know, like grown within, you know, a five minute walk of here, I think is pretty impressive or less. Yes. And being able to say, oh, you know what? This thing in your salad that you're eating right now came from the organic farm sandbox organics and the guy's name is you know and just like on and on and on about like this is the person that grew your food yes. and we know him personally like and he's Yoram Shannon is wonderful he's awesome he's fantastic and the stuff that that they grow at sandboxes I love I love coming in on Mondays and seeing we get our CSA to CSA from them we get a double share, right? Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Double share of fruit, double share of mushrooms, double share of flowers, and a double share of summer veggies and also fall veggies. Fall so veggies. So 22 weeks right. of delivery. And I come in on Mondays, and we have boxes of fruits and vegetables that they grew at Sandbox to play with. And it's a little bit different every week depending on what's in season. So I think it's really cool to be able to put that you know, up on a special or on Instagram and say, hey... These came from Sandbox Organics, which is about as local as you can possibly get, right? Or this was grown by Cedo down the street. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't get better than that. And I think that there is sort of a growing trend where people are thankful that they can go to a place and start to figure out exactly where their food came from. I wish it was more widespread, but, you know, that's that's what we do. We do one the work, so one step at a time. One customer at a time. And there we go. There we go. <laughs> we just keep spreading. We just keep spreading. Um... Okay, so there was one other question that I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about garbage. Let's talk about garbage. Um, talk about trash so, talk. Trash talk. So <laughs> here, Ooh, girl, <laughs> you don't even know. You don't even know. Um, See what what happened was. What? <laughs> <laughs> we have no fun here. We, no, not at all. Um, so here at Spoken, we we recycle, but we also compost. Um, I, I mentioned our composting program in our very first episode. If you've not listened to that yet, go back and listen to episode one. If you can stomach an hour of me rambling about random things. Um, but I do mention our, the company waste, not compost. So can you tell me, tell us a little bit about how that came into being and how it's become like a major part of how we, our waste program here. So Waste Not Compost is run by a young man, um, Liam Donnelly, um, who um, at the tender age of like 13 years old, um, at um, our sister store, Beans and Bagels at Rockwell and Leland, um, would not leave us alone about getting a job, even though he was very underage. Um, So he would just hang out at the front door of the shop Um, opening and closing the door and acting as a greeter um, to all of our customers and Liam's (laughs) always happy and and amazing and at the time also adorable Adorable. he's still adorable he's he's a little guy he's my favorite he is kind of but Liam was a go-getter and he wanted a job he desperately wanted a job so he would just hang out at the door and he would open the door for all the customers and welcome them to the shop in exchange I think usually for like some free breakfast or something like that 
And then eventually when he was old enough to work and could get like a worker's permit, we hired him and we were having a problem um, dealing with our recycling and like trying to compost and um, Liam seemed to show an interest in it so we just sort of like foisted it upon him. We're like, okay, cool, you have an interest. Now it's your responsibility and you'll be in trouble if you don't maintain it. So um, he like, You wanted a job, it, this is your job. He took it seriously and like got us buckets and did all the research on how to compost and what we can and what we cannot compost um, and started composting in his own backyard mm -hmm. um, in Ravenswood Manor um, in a three foot by three foot box. And um, wow. that uh, at eventually, uh, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and while he was still in high school, um, uh, it got to a place where it looked like this could be part of his future. So um, while he was in high school, um, to make everyone feel like we're slacking, he started his own LLC <laughs> before he could even buy cigarettes. Um, <laughs> and had his own company while he was still in high school um, composting for um, uh, the local cafe and a few people's homes. Mm -hmm. um, and Liam is um, now a sophomore in college at Loyola. Loyola. Yeah. At yeah. Loyola. Mm -hmm. um, and um, has like over a thousand accounts now, um, commercial and uh, residential and has um, two um, fully electric um, um, international e-star cargo vans that he mm -hmm. uh, hauls everything around with. Uh, but before, up to this the point, vans, for at least bike. the last five years, everything was by bicycle. Bicycle, yeah. Because he was composting, and if he's going to put that amount of effort into composting and trying to be eco-friendly and save the planet, why not do it all by bike mm -hmm. until he finds himself working 16 or 17 hours a day and going to hauling school. like a 300 pound, 400 pound sometimes trailer behind a bicycle uphill while crying in the snow. <laughs> Um, then in Chicago maybe he winter. should at least try Ugh. and get himself some electric vans or something like that. So now he has managed to expand his business enough to be able to afford two um, fully electric cargo vans that he does all of his pickups with mm -hmm. now. And he but, has like employees now and stuff too, right? He's got like yes. like a partner in the business. Yes. Mm -hmm. And at he one does. time I think one of his brothers was, was helping him out with... His brother was Absolutely. helping yeah. him. His um, uh, amazing girlfriend, Laura? Lauren. 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 Um, Lauren is helping him run the company now. But when we took Liam on for compost removal, we were also recycling at least all of our cardboard and all of our milk jugs, which mm -hmm. was the vast majority of all of the recycling that we had. And um, we were carting all that around by bicycle. By the way, our shop does not own a car. We only get around on bicycle. We and don't cargo even personally trailer. own a car. We don't mm -hmm. personally own car own a car either. We just like do car share subscriptions, which um, is amazing. Or they um, borrow my car. And that. Yes. Um, but which anyway, is totally cool. <laughs> um, Sharing is caring. Our recycling drop-off site where we were recycling everything was closed and we were approached by um, um, a gentleman, Gary Zuckerman, um, mm -hmm. from Recycle Plus, who had been running a recycling service in Chicago for years and years, whose wife obviously loves him because um, 
he goes around and picks up everybody's recycling and warehouses it on his own property until he has enough wow. cardboard to sell. And he, like, takes it to a local, like, box manufacturer and mm-hmm. sells all the cardboard back to them by the ton. And he takes all of the steel to the scrap yards and sells it. And he takes all of the newsprint back to, like, the Sun-Times and the Tribune and sells it directly back to them because mm-hmm. both Sun-Times and Tribune... Um, if I'm not mistaken, recycle their own newspapers and make new newsprint on site. Oh, um, great. Okay. So he physically goes back to the source for all of the re- these recycled goods and drops them back off to be put directly back into the stream. So mm-hmm. we contacted him, so he um, recycles all of our recyclables, and now we have what used to be a three cubic yard um, dumpster that was tipped or dumped twice a week, we now have um, the same three cubic yard dumpster that is dumped once a week and we can't even fill. It's never full. Um, it's never in full. In one yeah. week. Um, yeah. Restaurants generate um, an incredible amount of garbage um, in any given week. Um, and uh, it, it, it's unfortunate because it is, in the end, annually such a small expense in the grand scheme of things. Um, for us, it would be $180 a month um, mm-hmm. to not recycle or compost. $180 a month, they come twice a, me- twice a week and dump the dumpster and um, done and done and no problem. And... Um, we pay probably four or five times that amount um, to have a compost and a recycling service as well Mm -hmm. um, that will take those directly back to the source because if you have recycling services with the city and the prices drop too far, everything goes to the landfill. Even your recycling, recycling even like if it is a recycling like garbage truck that shows up, they're not gonna warehouse it. If the prices fall, they just take it to the to landfill. To the dumpster, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, at least with Recycle Plus, he will warehouse it until the price is where he likes it, and then, and then um, take, it. take it all off and sell all of it directly right. back in, you know, directly back to the manufacturers. So, all that being said, for small business owners to say things, and and I say this in in a very wide general thought um having worked for a company before that values doing things in this way as well there's there was always a lot of backlash as far as like well small businesses can't afford that you guys are a big a big and i'm not talking about here um where i worked before they're, they've been around for a long time so they're quite large um well you guys are a big company you guys are a corporation you can afford to do that well they're not a corporation first of all but second of all they've always done it that way, just like we are doing it that way now. And so the thought here is that just because you're a small business doesn't mean that you can't do things the right way. And like no. you said, it, it does cost more. It does cost more, but you have to, like, all fun 
things and rainbows and unicorns aside, you have to build a spreadsheet and you have mm. to plug in all of those costs, which then become part of your overhead, which then becomes part of the things on the menu that people buy and put in their face right. and pay for with money. Like, that is how you make that happen. And if you build that into the price of things, then you can afford to do whatever you want mm -hmm. as long as you have and you, you have a staff that is willing to take the time to explain to customers like what what we do and right. why we do it and why this costs what it costs. Right, right. Because there's a lot involved, you know, and a lot of what you're buying is made here. But you have to, you know, approach things from from the out, you know, from the outside. I, mm -hmm. I already worked here, so I have just spent a lot of time, like, dealing with change. Right. Um, and being, you know, an old white dude, um, <laughs> that's not easy. But, um, you know, you have to, like, not allow yourself to, like, constantly say no. No, mm -hmm. you can't do that. And, like, look at the thing that you don't think you can do and mm -hmm. analyze it and, like, can I or can I not accomplish this? Right. Can I or can I not afford this? Oh, look at that. I can afford to do this. Uh -huh. Then we'll do this. Right. And I, I think, too, that um, people should know that there is a difference between the small business owner that is... And, and again, I'm not trying to sound harsh to people that, you know, in general, but the small business owner that is in the business to make money, to make a profit, to grow his own bank account versus the small business owner that is in it to produce something and be an institution in the community. Be proud of their product. Right. Yeah. So I, I do think that there there is a distinct difference, you know, um, both here as well as the company that I worked for before. People assumed that the owners are making all kinds of money. <laughs> so what, right? What I think is so great about the fact that you two are, are here in visual eyesight of anybody who walks in the door on almost any given day sort of shows that, well, we're doing this because this is, this is, this is our home. This is what we do as opposed to I'm trying to make money Yeah. because anybody who gets into the restaurant business to make money is in the wrong business. I will I take a few, <laughs> I will take a few extra days of actually standing at the counter making sure that I know my client, I know our customers, I have that personal relationship mm -hmm. with them, mm -hmm. and I can use some of the money that it takes to have that one person stand there and have all compostable product. Yeah. As far as like the cups, the straws, the lids, the spoons, the knives, the forks, the napkins, mm -hmm. everything that we give to you outside of the wire basket that is holding all of this stuff in a place where you can bring it to a table is compostable. Right. I can feel good about that. I can sleep about that at night knowing that that's just that. I mean, how, many, how, much, how much compost do we generate? Oh, gosh. It's, we have four giant size I forgot garbage the, cans. There, there I forgot the total number. They are... They are is it four or is it five now? It's four. Four. Hold on. I'm doing some fast math. <laughs> 132 gallons of um, 132 gallons of compost twice a week. Um, and yeah. I wish I had the number. Um, 132 the, gallons the, twice the, a week? No, the, the tonnage that oh. we've composted oh, that we've composted, far. yeah. Uh, I've been asking um, Liam to provide that for us. Because that would it, be awesome. It is a ridiculous amount. It's I know. Right, yeah. Um, 
I, I, I think the first three years, in the first three years that we were with him, uh, or the first two years that we were with him, us and the, the cafe at Rockwell and Leland Beans and Bagels combined composted like 90,000 pounds of, um, of compost. Uh, that's uh, of that's compost. stuff that's, that stuff that goes back into to a gardening, gardening and out of the landfill yeah. and actually back into enriching dirt. soil so that you can make more food. Right, right, and and with this whole ban the straw craze right now that's that's going around. Not that I'm opposed to banning plastic items straw. that we don't need, but. Mm. It, to me, it was so like, and I've I've heard you say this to other people as well. Will like, well, why don't you just get a compostable straw? It breaks down like literally with within a you day. You can put it in a cup of boiling water, and it and just, it will disintegrate. Like, disintegrate. You can pour it down the sink. Like, it they're not that much more expensive, and they're easy to get from any wide distributor. So it's really like to me, it's not rocket science, but it seems to be True. rocket science. To well, what about other I mean, what I, about I the cup that, and the lid that ends up, you know? Forming islands out in the ocean, right? Right. <laughs> but I think the problem is for us um, living in the bubble that is Chicago, and mm. the fact that we have access to um, industrial level compost, composting, like yeah, the the, Not the PLA, which right. is PLA, which is uh, what most of the compostable plastics are made of. PLA is polyactic acid, I think is what it is. Something like that, um, made out of corn. But it will only break down. It, it, it's like plant cellulose, mm -hmm. typically corn stalk, um, but it will only break down under certain conditions and you will not meet those conditions in your compost in your um, backyard. pile in your backyard unless you have like a house-sized compost pile. Right. Um, but under industrial compost um, situations where it is very large and also closed to the air, like mm -hmm. in enclosed containers, you can reach incredibly, incredibly high temperatures. Um, and that is what allows us to compost those things. A lot of people don't have access in right. the entirety of their town or in some cases the entirety of their state. Yeah. There is nowhere to compost on that level. And that is when you run into these situations where a straw solution needs you know um needs it's to be had Granted, better it would than be nothing easier yeah. to have it would be easier to have an industrial composting company and everyone switch to that product which is only like a penny or two more per item per lid per mm -hmm. cup per bowl per fork knife straw like it is a nominal price difference right um but you need to have the ability to compost that right we luckily do a lot of places don't so I think that is part of the ban the straw mm -hmm. thing. And then I think the other part of that is unfortunately a total lack of knowledge of compostable plastics. Right, because right. I, I, I truly believe a big part of the population has no idea. That that's even that a thing. There is plastic out there that is made from plants and not dead dinosaurs. Right. Well, plastic and paper products and 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 Petroleum. and like all yeah. these things that Stop are now being made out of compostable materials, like packing peanuts. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies are now using packing peanuts that are made out of PLA that like dissolve on contact. So, like you can pour them into your sink, 
pour hot tap water on them and, and they, they dissolve, dissolve and go right down or the drain. Or you can eat them. You can eat them slowly but surely as a really sort of bland <laughs> snack. Please don't eat I them. I have eaten them before. They don't taste listen like, to my husband. They taste like don't kicks. eat them. They, taste, <laughs> they like, taste like kicks? They taste like kicks, the cereal, just not really? so much cereal. They taste like corn. I've eaten them. They That's taste like crazy. Corn. They taste I, like, a, like a corn puff cereal. My, my cat tries to eat them because a lot of cat food is filled with corn even though cats can't digest corn yeah just really it's it's a filler Mm -hmm. um but they get so accustomed to that taste that anytime corn is around my cat wants a piece of it Mm -hmm. including packing peanuts which are just it's nothing is funnier than watching a cat try to eat a packing peanut but it's like watching dogs eat peanut butter it's pretty hilarious um okay so last thing our last segment is called what's in your pie hole so i want to know what's in your pie hole (laughs) Well, in the land of Louisiana, rice is nice. Rice is nice. <laughs> um, by the way, some of you who are listening, who have listened to all of the episodes so far, you've heard that before because I did quote you guys <laughs> on that in the last episode. Um, we grow. So, I mean, I mean, we grow rice. That's where crawfish come from in right, Louisiana. Right. They like to eat the rice. We like to eat the crawfish and the rice. And the rice. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. <laughs> well, I was speaking with. Um, oh, there's plenty of them. last episode was. Uh, Amanda Neal, who is um, half Filipino, and oh, I'm, rice is nice for fit, right? For so many, for so many cultures. Yes, for so many cultures. So we we did talk about how rice is nice. Yes, yeah. but- rice is nice for so many cultures because um, science fact. Did you know rice has seven times the return on caloric intake versus input? So the amount of energy it takes to bring rice to your plate. The return on that energy is sevenfold when you eat it. Wow. Which mm-hmm. makes rice really, really nice. Very It's really nice. This yes. past yes. week, for Cito and I, rice was nice in a monstrous pot of mushroom gravy and meatballs. And we just had, like, rice and gravy with meatballs... Yes. I think like four nights, and then on Saturday, um, there were no more meatballs left, and there was also no rice, so I just called it mushroom gravy instead and put it on my scrambled eggs, and it was also <laughs> really good that way. Um, but yes, just like a giant pot of something and a... Plate of rice? A giant plate of rice, and that is my jam. Well, I think, Cito, I think you need to go into... Um, the word gravy because oh. it, here in the Midwest, gravy means something different than what it means to you guys in Louisiana. Mm. So, so <laughs> rice and gravy. For some people, would think that it's rice and then something that you would, you know, have in like, you know, a gravy boat. Gravy boat. This is not what we do in Louisiana. <laughs> you know, I mean, every, you know, every culture, every tradition has their soul food, has mm-hmm. their things. And for rice and gravy in Louisiana, it's basically, it's like whatever protein you have cooked within an inch of its life, you want to get, <laughs> you want to absorb every bit of gelatin and good juju out of the bones. <laughs> and then you just basically cook it until your patience lets out and you just, you just want to eat. You just want to eat. And so you can do this with pork, you can do this with chicken, you can do this with meatballs, you can do this with whatever. Mm-hmm. But it usually involves like your, you know... Your Cajun seasonings, garlic powder, onion powder, 
cayenne, of course. <laughs> um, you know, a little bit of a little bit of magic, whatever it's been that has been passed down from your family. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure um, every family has their own little bit of absolutely. magic. Absolutely, you basically you want to cook down your protein. You want to. Uh, you know, maybe maybe throw a little splash of beer in it. Maybe throw a little bit of a flower coating to give it that little bit of roux because, mm-hmm. you know, Cajuns love roux. Yes, um, yes they do. And then you just kind of fill it with as many onions as you can put inside of it. Maybe one bell pepper, but mostly <laughs> onions. And you just cook them all down until you almost can't tell what they used to be. Right. Then you add your meat back in. And it's just magic for days, or magic for a whole lot of people, but really, really, you know, cost-effective. Right, right. And that's a lot of things about the Cajun culture is they're really poor people, you Mm -hmm. know. They're, you know, they worked in fields. They did whatever they could, odd jobs. They were in really oppressive, like, you know, environmental Portions where you're low, you want to cook something and then you want to just be able to eat it just for a eat while it and not have to cook and not again have for to a couple cook days. Again for a couple days, right? Um, which is, you know, for for us who cook for you know anywhere from a hundred, you know, three hundred, four hundred people on the weekends, right. depending. We don't want to cook when we get home, so oh, we usually right. make a big pot at the beginning of the week or whatever day we have afternoon we have quote unquote off (laughs) and then we're fine just like you know what we don't even have to think about it you take it you warm it up it's home cooked it's something that we made ourselves and we can carry on with our life right and And still have get off of our feet delicious and and (laughs) yummy and and home cooking like five nights a week yeah yeah one night of cheap takeout (laughs) one date night and then five nights of eating out of the fridge and Which as I think? much as we work, as much as we work, I can say that I am truly proud that I like still manage to eat out of my own kitchen five, five nights, nights a, week a week while I spend almost every day of the week making food for other people. Right, right. I know yeah. plenty of chefs out there who have nothing in their fridge at all because no time or desire to. Oh, no. they to cook deal all with day it. long. They don't want to cook mean, for themselves. Yeah, they yeah. cook all day long, and then they just need somebody else to make something for them. Right. And not fancy either. Bad. Bad, 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 bad food. Bad food. Bad yeah. food. Yes. But I mean, I I, I feel like I, I can pride myself on that as well because I do, most of my meals are from my own kitchen, if not from here, which, you know, in part I, I made as well. So ah. <laughs> I'd say at it's least kitchen. 90% of what goes into my pie hole is made by my own two hands, which I, I'm pretty proud of that. That's, um, that's but my, my current food thing is, um, tacos and I, you know, you always got room for tacos. There's tacos never, are just for tacos are for any, <laughs> any time you want, but we had my, my nephew just turned one. And we threw a big party for him up in Michigan over the weekend. And my sister wanted it to be like rainbow colors. So everything, rainbow food. So there were all kinds of veggies and all kinds of fruits. And then we did this huge taco bar. When we invited 30 people to the party, maybe 25 showed up. And we cooked for like 80. Because, you know, that's kind of how you do. We don't do anything small in my family. Which is probably why I fit so well in your cafe. Um... (laughs) So my mother, of course, sent home with me a bunch of shredded chicken that was cooked with tomatoes and and onions and peppers and just all the good stuff. And then ground beef that was cooked up with all kinds of delicious taco seasonings. And then a big old thing of 
refried beans with chopped green onions and shredded cheese and two different kinds of salsa and corn tortilla. And she just sent me home with the whole bag full of this stuff. So I'm going to be eating tacos all week long and I am not upset about it in the least. Nobody's mad about tacos. Nobody's mad. Um, So that's what's in my pie hole. And I think, um, I think that's it. I think we have cover just about everything i wanted to cover thank you guys so much for being on my thank you for having us my podcast um i'm sure that sometime in the future if if this podcast takes off so you know rate and review listeners um we can have you on again and we can talk about more evolutions of of spoken and, and more cajun food and maybe at some point i will get to go to louisiana and we can talk more we we should make that happen because i've never been um that being said, thank you all for listening, and that's all for now. 